Well, if you uh, turn with me to your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, you'll find it on page 939 in uh, uh, the church Bibles. Romans 1, verses 19 to 20, let's hear God's Word. Since what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain to them, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature, clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Well, if you ever need a break from the frozen tundra of Chicago, you uh, could sit back and turn on your favorite TV show, Downton Abbey, perhaps, or a natural history program like Nature TV or the BBC's Life series, and that sounds too heavy, you could just watch a rerun of Finding Nemo to explore the Great Barrier Reef instead. As you observe the stunning colors, unusually shaped living organisms, if you are a Christian, you will be saying to yourself, the heavens declare the glory of God. If you're not a believer, you will be thinking, isn't nature amazing? Who is correct? Does nature point to a creator? So David Attenborough, the presenter of the Life Natural History series, thinks not. He says, my response is that when creationists talk about God creating every individual species as a separate act, they always instance hummingbirds or orchids or sunflowers and beautiful things. But I tend to think instead of a parasitic worm that is boring through the eye of a boy sitting on the bank of the river in West Africa, a worm that's going to make him blind... And I asked them, are you telling me that the God you believe in, who you also say is an all-merciful God who cares for each one of us individually, are you saying that God created this worm that can live in no other way than in an innocent child's eyeball? Because that doesn't sound to me to coincide with a God who is full of mercy. However, this view is a misunderstanding of what the Bible claims. Paul does not say that nature shows us that God is good. Paul says that nature shows his eternal power and divine nature. Oh no, it's very obvious that nature in its current fallen state is full of viciousness. Nature no longer perfectly reflects its creator. All nature now shows us is that there is a powerful creator. The revelation of nature is now limited. It does not tell us how to be saved. It does not tell us about the Trinity or about the love of God. There are elements of nature that may bear witness to these components, but they do so imperfectly because at the same time there are other parts of nature that bear witness to the full. That is why, while throughout the history of the world you will always find people worshipping a creator of some kind, you will find people worshipping creators who seem evil or vicious or weak and unable to stop another God who is evil and vicious. Because the witness of nature itself is unable to lead us to the full revelation of who God is, for nature is now fallen. Paul is not saying that nature tells us now how to be saved, nor fully who God is. In fact, specifically, it leaves us now simply without excuse. That's a word drawn from the law courts, meaning without a defense. It's actually the same word that is used by Christian apologists of their techniques of defending the existence of God, apologetics. 
So Paul is saying that what natural revelation does now is it leaves us without an apologetic against the reality that God exists. Nature now does not tell us how to be reconciled to that God. It does not tell us that God loves us. It leads us to this place where we long to hear about a message of good news and we long to proclaim that message of good news. See, Paul was saying in his argument here at this point in Romans that part of his eagerness for preaching the gospel is that nature as it is now leaves everyone everywhere with a sense that there is a powerful creator and not knowing how to be reconciled to him or that he loves them. And so Paul longs to go and tell them that good news. So Paul is saying that this natural revelation is plain still, but it is now limited. And he would not be surprised, I think, by Sir David Attenborough's response. Paul had seen people suffer, surely at the bloody hands of nature too, far more than most of us today in our modern medical sophistication. Now, because of the insufficient data in nature, Paul therefore longs to proclaim the special revelation of God in Christ. So part of the answer to the question, does nature point to a creator, as the Bible claims that it does, is to understand the limited information this natural revelation is now providing. Nature is only saying that there is a God who is powerful, who made everything. It is not saying now that God is Trinitarian, that He is holy, much less that He sent His Son to die for us. Natural revelation as it is now fallen does not reveal the Christian God as nature has now fallen. It just reveals God or a God divine nature, eternal power. Now, of course, for those of us who have the information from other sources who have accepted Christ, well, we can see far more than that in nature. It becomes full of reflections of who God is in His fullness, Trinitarian, loving, sacrificial for our sake. It becomes a place that is packed with images and shadows of divine things, as Jonathan Edwards Put it so that we can take a walk in the woods and feel surrounded by the love of Jesus. That is the Christian experience, but it is our interpretation, the accurate interpretation, we believe. But we would not get there if we did not know Jesus through the preaching of the gospel already. So to answer our question, does nature point to a creator, we need to understand the kind of revelation that nature gives on its own, now in its fallen state, and not claim too much for it. Otherwise, we'll be saying things that are clearly not precisely true. We'll be claiming too much. And there has been in Christian history a whole theory at one time that did this, that it said you could do away with special revelation of the Bible and Jesus' church and just rely on natural revelation. Well, this is absurd. It was popular once because nature does not now reveal that much. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We can only see those things in nature, those of us who are in Christ, because we have Christ already. And so if you sit down and look at a sunflower, you do not gain the same amount of information as you gain from reading the book of Romans. But if you have read the book of Romans, it is wonderful to see how the truths here revealed are confirmed by the revelation of God all around us in nature. Still, though part of the answer to the question whether nature points to a creator is understanding the limited data that natural revelation gives us in its fallen state, it is not the whole answer. For many people would say that nature does not point to any kind of creator at all. How do we answer that? 
If we agree that nature does not point fully and completely all by itself now in its fallen state to the Trinitarian God of love as revealed in the Bible, and that because it does not, and that leaves us without excuse, that's why we're so keen to preach that Trinitarian God of love as revealed in the Bible. If we agree that, then how can we answer credibly those who will say to us, that nature, as they observe it, whether in science or in their own experience of life, does not point to any kind of God at all. Well, to answer that question, let me tell you another story, which is a pastiche of many interactions I have with people on this subject on secular university campuses, and though it does not represent one particular person because it's a joined together of these many stories, I think it represents many people. So, the person, let us call him Jack, begins in this conversation, are you telling me that to be a Christian I have to believe that God made the world in seven literal days only a few thousand years ago, and the whole of evolutionary science is represented by just about every major university institution in the world is wrong? No, I reply, I'm telling you to be a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus, for a Christian is a Christian someone who follows Jesus Christ. Read about him in the Gospels. If you find him compelling, as I think you will, follow him and do as he asks you to do in every area of your life, and you will discover that his attitude to the Old Testament is that it is all God's Word. So, Jack comes back to me, does that mean I have to believe that God made the world in several literal days? It means, I say, you believe in Jesus, you follow him, And he treats the whole Bible as God's Word. You need to believe that Genesis is God's Word, just like you do Job and the Psalms. But there are issues of genre, style of literature, and you will need to come to your own conclusions about some of these matters. All I can tell you is that there are followers of Jesus who hold to different views on the matter that you are pressing me on. I wonder whether you would answer my imaginary interlocutor, my questioner, in exactly the same way, or you would answer it somewhat differently. When someone follows Christ, then their attitude to creation and anything else will gradually be shaped as a matter of discipleship by Jesus. But it's important we preach Christ, not creation. For I am to preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. See, Paul is presenting a view of the witness of nature that is plain but limited. Surely we are not surprised that people do not see what we see in Genesis 1 to 2. Now, the witness of nature in its fallen state is plain but limited. That is, it points to a creator, but Paul does not say that nature here tells us precisely how God created. And, of course, Christians, as I say, differ on their interpretations on those matters. So we're defining what Paul is saying here, right here, in order to show how his conclusion, that it leaves us with no defense against the truth of God as creator, is actually genuinely true. That nature does point to a creator, even if it does not tell us that that creator is also a loving savior, that is revealed in Christ at the cross. Or exactly how that creation happened in nature in its fallen state. It does not give us that information. Now, with these definitions in mind, we're getting closer to being able to answer the question with which we started. 
does nature point to a creator? But we're still some way off from achieving it with the kind of certainty that Paul plainly considered it deserved. How does nature plainly point to a creator? Let me try and show us that. In Christian apologetics, there are several different answers to that question. Historically, Aquinas came up with his five ways, which are really four different expressions of what is normally called the cosmological argument, or the argument from cause to effect, and one version what is called the teleological argument, or the argument from design. It's sometimes said there are four classical arguments then for the existence of God from nature, cosmological, teleological, moral, and ontological. The moral argument is the argument that C.S. Lewis used at the beginning of his Mere Christianity Apologetics book. It is saying that we recognize that there is a moral order to the universe, and this means that there is a God who provides that moral order. The ontological argument was developed by a man called Anselm originally, and there have been many other versions of it, Jonathan Edwards and his own version and others more recently that uh, today people think are a little more successful. In addition to these four classical arguments, there's a branch of apologetics introduced in the 20th century called presuppositional apologetics, which argues that the way we talk and argue presupposes God And their approach is to point out these presuppositions, and then there are other versions of the above arguments of various kinds. Most recently, there's what's called the anthropic principle, which is a version of the argument from design, which claims the universe is so finely tuned for human life that it demands this explanation that Paul is talking about. I was once uh, catching a ride in a car with a friend from Edinburgh and Scotland all the way down to London in England. This is a long drive, about 10 hours or so, and we had plenty of time to talk. This friend was not a Christian, and after a while, our conversation turned uh, to spiritual matters. I began to talk about why it was that I believed in God and how I had come to accept Jesus as the Lord of my life. My friend listened kindly for a while and interacted with affirmation and encouragement at various points. After a moment's silence, as we waited in some interminable traffic jam, my friend looked out the window and said, you know, I feel closest to God when I look at a sunset. I love sunsets. Now, Paul is saying, you see, there is something within each of us that recognizes the Creator Around You see, why I think that each of those arguments I just mentioned have some merit, Paul's point runs through them all and is deeper than them all. The classic arguments for God at a purely intellectual level, the most compelling in my view is the ontological argument. This is a version of what John says at the beginning of his gospel when he says that in the beginning was the Word. There is a structure to reality, a logos a mind that stands behind all and everything. And in our information revolution today, that reality is more apparent all the time. Information is stored digitally in the cloud. And the matter we think of as substance all around is an expression of various quantum interactions, energy, complicated physical laws, which cannot be explained, I think, without a mind that stands behind it all, in my view. 
The atheist seems to me to be in the unfortunate position of arguing for nothing but matter with a mind that is something more than matter. Seems to me that atheism at its very roots is a doctrine, at its basis is a doctrine that is then self-referentially incoherent. By that I mean this, if we were truly in an atheistic universe and there was no super-divine mind at all, we would not be able to discuss and debate with our minds. For matter cannot generate mind, only mind can generate matter. As I say, I think this version of the ontological argument is most persuasive intellectually. The arguments have value for sure, and some people find them helpful, but I understand why some consider the argument from design to be answerable by saying that things simply look like they've been designed, and I understand why people say that arguing for an ultimate cause behind the effects of the world is assuming this world has a meaning, when it could be that simply it does not. The moral argument that C.S. Lewis brought forward is persuasive emotionally because we all want to live in a moral ordered world, but intellectually it seems plain to me that atheists are not less or more moral than theists necessarily. For every Stalin you have another evil dictator who worships a pagan god of some kind or other. And I understand Lewis is making a different argument from that, that rationally moral values necessitate a moral God, but philosophers like Immanuel Kant have come up with complicated answers to that along the lines of what is known as the categorical imperative. And I'm probably getting too complicated for some here, though others will have thought about these matters and want to know that I, as a representative of the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith, have also done so and have formulated credible answers to them. The ontological argument, though, not so much the version that Anselm developed, but more recent versions by John Edwards and others, and in particular from the texts of the Bible in John chapter 1, that tweak to the ontological argument for the nature of reality as it is, I think is defensible, and I believe even many atheists with whom I've interacted would at least cede that point. However, I think Paul is saying something a little closer to what my friend said in the car when we were driving down from Scotland to London in, in England. When I see a sunset, I feel God close. Paul was not talking about feelings in the sense of emotions or irrational feelings, but about a sense of God, a deep intuition, a grounding that is immediate and undeniable that leaves us without a defense against the idea that God really, truly does exist. God, according to Paul, is less like a conclusion from a long and complicated series of arguments than like the grounding of what we daily experience. People, he knew, of course, run away from this sense of God all the time, and they try to deny the reality that they feel, but it does not leave them. Indeed, it cannot. You see, if Paul is right, God is not distant and arguing for God is not like arguing for whether Pluto is a planet or not, or whether light should be made up of waves or particles or some other component, as is the latest theory. But to use an argument from C.S. Lewis made in another place, like believing in the sun. We believe in God like we believe in the sun, not because we can see it, but because by it we see everything else. This is the sense 
of God, the grounding of our perception of everything else. Believing in God is like believing that what we see in front of us when we walk in this building and there's lights and people all around us, we believe that they exist and we don't need to prove it any more than we need to prove that other minds exist or that our own mind exists. Such is believing in a creator God of some kind. You see, if Paul is right, the very words that I speak, the reverberation in your eardrum by those tiny little inner ear hairs carried by electrical signal to your brain so that you hear the words that I speak, the eyes receiving light going through your eyeball, picked up at the back of the eye, translated through to your brain by which you see all this, the beating of your heart, the breathing in and out of your lungs, all this is immediately and constantly and only an expression of the actual living God who is. And denying that is not only like a computer program denying that there is a computer programmer, it is like the words that appear on the computer screen as you type, suddenly instead of saying what you are typing, saying back to you, you do not exist, you who are typing these words. It is impossible. It leaves us without a defense. We are because he is. And we sense that somewhere deep down, even if it only comes out in the most unlikely of places like when we look at a sunset, or when we come to church. For there is more than natural revelation. There is the table as well as the sunset. And while the sunset may prompt us to wonder how we can find this God who is there, the table shows us visibly the way that was made that we might come to Him. And so this morning, as we gather, we gather around the center of the universe. Not the earth, not, not the sun. Jesus. This morning, we celebrate the key that unlocks the secrets of the cosmos. Not quantum or a unified theory of everything or the general theory of relativity, but the cross. That key is turned by faith, you know. For while the reality of God as, as, as creator is revealed in nature, to know him personally requires trust. So let me tell you, he bled for you. He died for you. He was risen for you. The secret of life is not found at the other end of a telescope as it scans the majestic panoply of the far-flung stars or down a microscope in a test tube or in the stunning colors of the coral reef. It is Him. And you may have Him for your own forever for the asking. He does not bow and bended knee awaiting your approval. He does not need you at all, but He wants you. 
You have any doubts, you look at the table, you look at the cross. He is Lord of all, majestic creator with more almighty power and his little finger than can be found in a thousand burning stars. And more mercy than can ever be needed by the greatest sinner. The Lord of all time is at this moment proclaiming to you that the time has come for you to trust Him. What does that mean? You see, it it means to turn, to start again, and to bow your knee before your Creator, Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we do that. We bow before you. We thank you for the revelation of nature. How much more do we thank you for the revelation of the cross, of your word, by which we are free through the power of your spirit if he frees our hearts to put our trust in you. Would you do that today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.